Let's come and let's pray together as we approach God's Word. Father, we recognize that our lives are by no way perfect. They are fractured as we live in this fallen world. But Father, we thank you that when we come to you, you restore us. So come, speak to us and minister to us this morning. Encourage us, rebuke us, correct us in your word. And may your spirit be upon us so that as we leave here, we will know the challenge, the challenge of how we are to live as disciples of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. If you've been with us for the past number of weeks, you'll know that we're coming to week three in our current series, which is Gods That Fail. Looking at the idols in this world that so subtly take us away from God and place our focus on the things of this world and what this world dictates to us. We've recognized that both the idols of money and romantic love can never satisfy us in life. The idol of money will always leave us wanting more, whether it is more cold hard cash or possessions. The idol of romantic love means that we are looking for fulfillment in something else other than in God or, or someone else. It gives us a false sense of security as we look to emotions and feelings from humans to give us our purpose and our identity. And we've looked at, in both instances, we've recognized that it is only God who can fulfill us. It's only God who can satisfy us to give us that purpose and that identity and give us the security that we need in life. This all came out of the study that we've done in the Ten Commandments just after Christmas. Exodus 20, God tells us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And from this we've been learning that God requires the central place in our lives. For the children of Israel at the time of receiving these commandments and hearing them, they were just free from slavery in Egypt. God had rescued them. They couldn't do anything of themselves. They could never leave Egypt. Only by God could this happen. And what he made happen, how he brought everything under his control together so that his people would be free, they would be saved, and they could worship him as their sovereign God. They couldn't claim anything of themselves. They could only look back and see that it was everything of God. Everything was God's love, and everything was God's grace. And this is where we are today. This is where we are with our third idol, or the gods that fail. We're looking at success. The idol 
of success, the God that fails. Preparing sermons is a funny thing. And I say funny in the peculiar sense rather than in the hilarious sense. Whenever I started thinking about this sermon over the past week, I came to realize something about myself that I had never realized before. And as people had commented on this particular character trait of mine, I laughed it off and thought it was friendly banter. But it actually turns out that I'm quite a competitive person. I didn't know this. But those in my discipleship group following a games night, those who ran the marathon a few weeks ago, uh, indeed a games night a few weeks ago, and uh, other things along the way, including YF on uh, Friday night, proved to me that I like to succeed. There's something within me that wants to win. And I don't like it when I don't. This came as a complete shock to me. And as I've been reading and studying for this, it's really challenged me as about, well, where is it all lying? And as I thought further, I recognized that what does success mean for me? Success means that I have the upper hand. It means that I can brag about an achievement, whether it's about the time that you come in in a marathon or whether your team comes first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth. Whether you win in a board game or whether you just want to beat somebody else at something, it's this drive that wants you to be better than the person who most likely is a friend, but to succeed, to win, to be better than the person. And I guess if we're all honest, there's a little bit of success in us, the desire to succeed. Within each of us, there's this desire that we'll be better than the next person. Whether it be in our workplaces, whether it be in our social groups, there's this drive within us that either makes us want to match up, to be at par with everyone else, or to be better. We want to feel as if we have a place and a purpose in this world that gives us significance, it gives us standing, and it gives us a bit of bragging right. And it's not just for ourselves, but it may be for our families. We demand a certain level of success from our families, whether it be the children that we have in their examinations and in their career paths, or whether it's for a spouse that they will succeed to a level that is acceptable to you, or indeed in church. We want to succeed in church. What's the level of success in church? Is it the number of people on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening? Is it the number of people who flock to activities that we run? Or is the level of success something that should be more deeper? Lives challenged and changed by God. No matter what it is, we we all have a desire to succeed. And it all stems from this desire within us that we want to be the one who can brag. We want to be the one who can talk to the next person and say, we're better, I'm better, or I'm just as good as you. When offering some evidence for this kind of thinking, Tim Keller quotes a counselor who works with high-level executives. Her name is Mary Bell, and she offers this insightful comment. Achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. 
they abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, and you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever, and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, which is still normal. But you love the feeling of euphoria. So, you've got to get, you have to get it again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. Say you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem is on the line because you've been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually in this cycle, you drop to the pain level more and more often. The, high, uh, the highs don't seem quite so high. You may win a deal that's even bigger than the one that got away, but somehow that deal doesn't take you to euphoria. Next time you don't even get back to normal because you're so desperate about clinching the next deal. An achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. Although this is framed in the context of the business world, I think we can recognize what Mary Bell is saying. It's the same and can be replicated in each sector of industry and employment, in education, in the civil service, in the healthcare professions, in the legal world, in the church. There's this idea that we always want to get that feel-good feeling, that euphoria where we have succeeded, but it will never satisfy us because that euphoria will be dampened as life returns to normal and we can never get it back again. Commenting on this, Keller adds, in the end, achievement can't really answer the questions. Who am I? What am I really worth? How do I face death? It gives the initial illusion of an answer. There is an initial rush of happiness that leads us to believe we have arrived, been included, been accepted, and proved ourselves. However, the satisfaction quickly fades. And this is where we turn to God's Word. This is where we'll look at 2 Kings 5 and see what lessons we can learn from it as we desire to have God as number one and not allow the idol of success to creep in and take us from that position. So, if you can, follow along on page 373, 2 Kings 5, as we'll be going through this passage to see what it says to us. Second Kings 5, the story of Naaman. And verse 1 starts straight, straight away by giving us the credentials of Naaman. He's one of the central characters in this story. He is the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He is the top military man who we are told is thought very highly of by the king and by those around him. He has been extremely successful in winning battles and awards for the king. He even recorded, is recorded as being a valiant soldier. He was a man at the pinnacle of his career. This was it. These were the good days, the high days for Naaman. He couldn't get much higher than where he was. He was the king's right-hand military man, but he had one problem. And right there at the end, tucked in very so nicely at the end, we are told, but he had leprosy. Leprosy was the cancer of its day. It was the common disease that no one spoke about. 
but yet was affecting people everywhere to varying degrees of severity. But here was one of the most successful men in the kingdom of Aram in Syria, and he was suffering with this disease. And this disease made him the social outcast. Everything that he had, his position, his wealth, his associations, should have made him an insider. It should have meant that he was in the inner circle of this social world. But it turns out that everything he had, which far outweighed in his own eyes everything else, was worth nothing because he was a social outsider because he had leprosy. And it turns out in verses 2 and 3 that the Syrian armies had captured a young girl from Israel. And she was a servant to Naaman's wife. And it is with her lies the answer to help Naaman with his leprosy. And she says to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so for Naaman's wife, this sounds like a great idea. She recognizes because she also is excluded because her husband is excluded. And it sounds like a great idea. So she takes it to her husband, who takes it to his boss, the king. And in verses six, 4 to 6, they reveal to us how Naaman thought this was going to work. In Naaman's mind, it was all about the letters. It was all about the titles. He would use these along with recommendations and commendations and money to secure the cure for his disease. For him, it would be easy sailing. This was the worldview that Naaman had. This was how he worked, how he did business. If I have enough, if I have enough and enough, and I can bring it all with me and I can bowl them over, they'll do whatever I want. This is what he was used to. And this is what he thought would work. So off he went to the king of Israel with the question, how could such a great plan fail? But fail it did. Because in verse 7, the king of Israel, his response is by ripping his robes and accuses Naaman as being this channel that the king of Aram was going to use to be a troublemaker, to bring back a war, to start fighting again. So for Naaman and the king of Aram, they get the whole picture wrong. They believe that religion in Israel works the same way that it does everywhere else. And at this time in the ancient Near East, this part of the world that we're looking at, religion was so tied into the society. It was a social tool. It was the thing that controlled people. If you want to get people on your side, you bring a bit of fear into it, with religion, and they'll do whatever you say. And so, the king of Aram and Naaman thought that this was how it worked in Israel. But the news for Naaman was that God is not on a rope. He cannot be called out and rolled back in again any time which suits people. And this came as a shock to him. Naaman's whole idea of how this was going to work is crushed. Everything that he stood for, his levels of success, everything that he banked on didn't work and wouldn't work. He's now standing in Israel with things that are completely worthless for what he wants. His titles, letters, and money cannot get him the cure that he so desires. But the king 
ripping his robes is not a daily affair, and it gets out into the countryside and eventually comes to the ears of Elisha. And whenever Elisha hears what has happened, he sends a message to the king in verse 8. And Elisha suggests that the king send Naaman to him so that he can show him, that is Naaman, that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman, with hope restored, heads off down to Elisha's house. But when he gets there, things don't go exactly how he thought they might go now. Because Elisha doesn't come anywhere near him, but instead sends a messenger to tell Naaman to go out, to go down to the Jordan, and to wash seven times. And in doing this, he will be healed. Naaman is totally crushed. This is not how this was supposed to go. He was in the inner circle in the ruling in Syria. He had the ear of the king. People were to respect him and do what he said. He expected Elisha to accept the money that he had brought and perform some kind of magical ritual or demand that he do some great act to earn his healing. Instead, he was asked to simply go and dip in the river Jordan. And rather than going to the river in verse 11, we're told that he went off in a rage. He's furious. He is angry that things are not going the way his worldview told him they should go. He's again challenged to his very core about what all this means. This wasn't how it was to be done. In Naaman's world, everything of himself, his wealth, his titles, his power and authority, that was the currency with which he traded. And now his currency was completely worthless. Keller points out that this is an important lesson. An important lesson that Naaman is learning. He is learning that this God is not an extension of culture, but a transformer of culture. Not a controllable, but a sovereign Lord. He was being confronted with a God who in his dealings with human beings only operated on the basis of grace. Until Naaman learns this, that God is a God of grace whose salvation cannot be earned, only received, he would, be, he would continue to be enslaved to his idols. The command was simply to just wash yourself. But to do this, Naaman would have to admit he was helpless and weak and had to receive his salvation as a free gift. He was helpless and he was weak, even though he was one of the most wealthiest and powerful men in Syria. Everything, everything that... Naaman had built in his life. Everything that he went for and tried to achieve at this moment in his life was worthless. Because when it came to dealing with God, God works on the principle of grace. God was not and will not be flattered or impressed by titles, by wealth, by commendations and recommendations. God deals with grace. God gives grace. Nothing of ourselves can ever 
earn us favor. None of our successes, the things that we trust in in this world, will ever give us anything with God. And so in the passage, the scene changes. Naaman has stormed off. He's thrown the rattle out of the pram. That's it. He's had enough. But there are people who care about this man. His servants, of all people. His servants try to persuade him to go and do as Elisha has said. And this all stems from the initial bit of advice, the initial source of help, the little servant girl. Here, in the home of Naaman, you have a young girl who was at best captured with her family or at worst saw them massacred by the man who was now her master. In the worldview, including our worldview, who could ever blame her for wanting revenge? For wanting to get back at this man who had done this to her and her family? At this moment, she had the upper hand. The man who had destroyed her life was now having his life destroyed by a disease. All she had to do was sit back and watch it happen. This would be her revenge. This would be her moment to look on and to gloat and see Nunam's demise as a success for her own. Rather than take this attitude, her attitude is completely different to what a worldview would tell us. She shows grace by offering help. She is a servant, probably aged 12 to 14 years, and she is female. She doesn't have anything going for her in terms of the culture at this time. Yet, her master has to humble himself to take her advice. And now, the servants are endorsing this. The servants are saying, do this. This man of military might is now following the word of his servants. And so he is convinced that this will be the best thing. And so he goes and he dips himself in the River Jordan seven times and he is healed. Naaman has been brought to the point where nothing of his own merit can help him except to believe in the words of the man of God. And so let's take stock of Naaman's life. He had everything. Success in his job, which brought power, authority, wealth, and influence. He relied on this to get him through life. And it had worked for him. But then the disease came. And it was worth nothing. He had to take advice from a foreign servant girl, have his success thrown back at him by a foreign king, be instructed by a messenger, and he also accepted the encouragement of his own servants. This incident has flipped Naaman's life upside down. This is why in verse 15, when he goes back to Elisha, he proclaims the truth that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Did you notice one of the things that he had to do? He had to accept the word of a servant girl and also the servant of a prophet of God and then the words of his own servants. All of these people have absolutely no standing in Naaman's world. But yet, God had sent his message of salvation through them. The answer came not from the palace, 
but from the slave quarters. And success blinds us to the reality that everything comes from God. Even in verse 1, we are told that Naaman has achieved so much because through him the Lord has given victory to Aram. Everything had been given to Naaman because of God. He had no reason to boast in anything because it was given to him by God. And so it is with us. Any success we have in our professional and social lives is all to do with God's grace rather than any acts of our own. Success blinds us from the reality that everything comes from God. When we think of the lives that we are called to, the life of discipleship, there is no room for focusing on our achievements. There's no room for focusing on our successes or what others will think of us. Jesus came not to a palace, but to a stable. His salvation was achieved not through strength, but through surrender, service, sacrifice, and death. Keller points out again, this is one of the great messages of the Bible. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish and despised things to shame the wise, even the things that are not, to bring nothing the things that are. 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31. That's how God does it. He turns what is our accepted worldview completely upside down to give us a Christian worldview that says my success is only by God's grace and it holds nothing for me in who I am before him. We cannot boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But our boast is in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. I ask you to join me this morning in trying to suffocate the idol of success in each of our lives. That, that phrase is a powerful one. Success blinds us to the reality that everything comes from God. Yes, God uses success. He can give it to us so that it will be used for his glory. But when it becomes the one thing we want so that we have the bragging rights, so that socially we look better than everyone else, we look comfortable, we look happy, we look content, that's where our worlds fall apart. Because once again, we are putting in God's place an idol that has no right to be there. Can we together, as his people, as a family and a community who worship here, can we look to Christ? Can we look to him? Because it is in him where our identities are found. Each of these idols that we've looked at, they're very personal. They can be hard-hitting because life tells us that we should have money. We should be in relationships of love and we should succeed. But God says all that is false. All of it is false because he is the only one who brings the stability to life. He is the only one who is the true living God he is the only one who can fix us.
on the path that will lead us to his eternal glory. We're not made to be islands on our own. We're not made to be isolated. We are the body of Christ. So together, let's conquer our idols. Let's come together, let's talk together, let's pray together that we will have nothing, nothing of the things that this world offers, but we will have everything that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, in these past few weeks, we we have took note and recognized about how subtle these idols are. Because all our intents and purposes start off so well that we'll give the money back to you, that we'll enjoy the, the loving relationships that you give us as a blessing from you, and that as we succeed, we will use our positions to proclaim you and, and your salvation message wherever we can. But all too often we take stock and say we don't have a enough money just yet. I need to know what this emotional love relationship is more and more, God, that I don't have time just to, to find out more about you or the excuse that we need to get up to the next rung of the ladder. Father, you say it's worth nothing because we're placing idols in, in front of you. So we must start and say we're sorry and ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us for whenever we have submitted to other things that take us away from you and help us. Help us to be genuine in our intent with what you have given us. May they never become idols and may we never use what you have given us as rights to anything. But may we always know the truth that our identity and our security lies in your free grace. Lord, help us as we think through all of this. Help us as we lay ourselves before you and ask for your, for your guidance and your continual love so that we will know what step to take next. And Father, help us to do it together. Help us in the love that we know of Christ as individuals spread among us all so that we can be truly your community and your people and your church as you've called us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.